Well, brethren, I would encourage you to join me in turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 40 as we continue on in the Word of God in the book of Genesis. It's interesting, just as you are praying, all the things that you might have lifted up as prayer requests immediately come to mind. And um, one of them is that you would uh, obviously pray for those who are deployed and seeking churches uh, and Christian fellowship. Uh, whether from our congregation or friends of ours, we do want to uh, remember them as well. Uh, I'd appreciate it if you would remind, remember a uh, friend of the men's group, uh, in particular Ryan, who is in Korea. He needs, uh, he needs uh, good church and good fellowship while he's over there. So uh, do keep him in your prayers, particularly those of you who know him. Um, let's now turn our attention to the Word of God once again. And before we read the Word of God and continue on in the story of Joseph, how he was sold into slavery and how that too was part of God's plan of redemption and the way that he would save not only uh, Joseph's family, but would keep alive, of course, the, uh, the root of the promised seed, uh, the family from whom Jesus and, uh, would eventually spring. Let's, uh, let's go before the Lord, though, and ask that he would help our understanding. God, our Father, it's amazing how many distractions come to our minds when the word is being preached. When we are in worship, things that would never catch our attention, thoughts that we wouldn't entertain for a second, suddenly enter in and they become the thing that we meditate upon instead of your word. And then 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, we realize that we've been thinking on things of time, things of no importance whatsoever instead of the things that matter forever. I pray, therefore, the Lord, that you would help us to fix our attention on this word and that we would gain encouragement from it. Remind us that these words were not written for a people long ago alone. They were written for your people in every time, in every age. They were written to us. As we read them, remind us of that. Remind us this is your speech to us. This is a faithful testimony of your working. And you are the same God today as you were in Joseph's, and you will take care of us. Help us to remember that. You did not forget your servant Joseph, and so too you will not forget us. Now, Lord, help me to preach. I am a sinful man with feet of clay. I need your your aid. Unless I know your Holy Spirit's power within me, how can I ever hope to open up your word to your people? Therefore, I pray, Lord, that you would bless me and help me to speak aright. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Genesis chapter 40, I remind you, this is the word of the living God. It came to pass, after these things, that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them. So they were in custody for a while. Then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, had a dream, both of them, each man's dream in one night, and each man's dream with its own interpretation. And Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them, and saw they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in the custody of his lord's house, saying, Why do you look so sad today? And they said to him, We each had a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. So Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, in my dream a vine was before me, and in the vine were three branches. 
It was as though it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. But remember me when it is well with you. And please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews. And also I have done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon. When the chief baker saw the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also was in my dream, and there were three white baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of his chief, of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler to his leadership, uh, to his butlership rather again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Have you ever had a friend who seems to be completely incapable of sympathizing with you in your times of difficulty simply because they cannot see beyond their own perceived problems? So that, for instance, uh, I mean, you could come to them and you could say, I just got back from the doctor's office. He tells me I've only got a month or so to live. And they look at you and they say, you think you've got problems? My head right at the moment. I feel like I'm going to die by the end of the week. And whatever you tell them, they have to one-up you. There's always something worse. They can't see beyond their own problems for a moment. Now, we could expect Joseph at this point in time to be endlessly feeling sorry for himself, couldn't we? I mean, he tells his father about his brother's evil actions, and they respond by selling him into slavery in Egypt. And despite being sold into slavery in Egypt... He excels in his work there, and he's moved ahead once again. He becomes essentially the the overseer, the steward of Potiphar's property. And then his master's wife keeps attempting to seduce him, but he resists that. He does the right thing, and then he gets framed by her and thrown in jail indefinitely. There is no release date for him, no trial date, no you will be out in so many days or at least your case will be heard in so many days. We, we might expect him to become Joseph Sulks a lot at this point in time, to merely go around moping, no good, no matter what I do, nothing good ever happens, I'm not even going to bother anymore. And just sit in his cell and stare at the ground and complain. He could say, I'm tired of caring about other people. From now on, I'm only looking out for number one. It's Joseph who's first on the agenda. I'm going to make sure I take care of me. He could do that. But he doesn't, brothers and sisters. And when two of his fellow inmates in the prison are sad, he actually notices this. They're sadder than the normal prisoner would actually be in the morning. And he asks them, what's, what's the matter? Why are you downcast? 
Now, just to review, Joseph, because of his excellent work and his complete lack of corruption, had become what was known in, in the British uh, prisons as a trustee or a turnkey, a uh, prisoner who actually worked for the warden, somebody who was trusted to go about the prison openly and to take care of the needs of other prisoners. Uh, he has become this person in Pharaoh's prison. Now, we know Pharaoh's prison was overseen by the captain of the guard, Potiphar, whom we had worked for. And last time we discussed uh, chapter 39, I mentioned that it was very probable that Potiphar knew that Joseph was, was innocent of trying to seduce his wife, that it was probably the other way around, but because of uh, you know, the social stigma and so on, he probably did not want to release him. So, uh, as chapter 39 tells us, Joseph is in prison, but he is still excelling even there. Why is that? Well, because as 39 tells us at the very end of the chapter, because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. No matter where Joseph was, the Lord did not forget him. We need to remember this, brothers and sisters, as we go through this story and indeed as you go through all of the Bible, remember this, the Lord never ever forgets his servants, no matter what the situation they are in is. He doesn't forget his children. But sometimes he puts them in places that they don't want to be. And certainly, as we see, Joseph did not want to be in this jail. But unlike an ordinary prisoner, because of his excellent behavior, he has access to all of the prisoners, including these new important prisoners. These were the servants of Pharaoh. The butler would have been more than someone who we would expect to open doors in a tailcoat and say, yes, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, in British costume dramas. That's not the kind of butler we're talking about. We're talking about a butler like Nehemiah, the cupbearer of Artaxerxes, somebody who was at the right hand of the king, somebody who was trusted implicitly, somebody whom Pharaoh would have spoken to in a friendly way and whom he would have taken advice from, somebody he also trusted with his life because amongst his duties, he was the one who mixed the king's wine and who would taste it himself for Pharaoh. So this was a very important person in his life, somebody who literally placed his life in his hands on a regular basis. The baker would have been similarly exalted in Pharaoh's household. We're not, no, we don't know exactly what his responsibilities would have been, but it was certainly not the case that he was merely a cook within the palace. He would have been somebody more important than that. Now, what had they done? Well, we don't know specifically what they had done to get thrown in jail, but we are told they offended against Pharaoh. They literally, according to the text, they sinned against him. Now, it's possible they did something that offended him. They said the wrong thing at the wrong time. They laughed at somebody else's joke at the, at the wrong moment or something like that. It could have been something minor, or it could have been that they were suspected of perhaps plotting against Pharaoh, plotting to throw, uh, th overthrow him. But we don't know what happened. Whatever it was, it offended Pharaoh so much that he threw them in jail where they would await sentence. Joseph, on the other hand, had done no wrong. But the uh, implication is that these men had done something that was potentially grievous. Now, both of them have these dreams. They have these disturbing dreams. And we need to understand there was a big difference between dreaming in the ancient world and, and dreaming in the modern world. Not in the, in the way that we dream, obviously, but in the way that we think about dreaming. The way that we interpret our dreams. For us... Because of the, the baneful effects of hundreds of years of psychologists like Sigmund Freud and so on, the only way we think about dreams is uh, it's our unconscious mind sorting through kind of the detritus 
uh, of unprocessed ideas or our desires, or it's just our mind dealing with anxiety and so on. These are, these are basically disturbances mentally that we are trying to order and sort out. Our explanations for dreams are therefore entirely subjective. They're entirely psychological. They supposedly tell us about ourselves. So what do we do? Well, we either, you know, say, I had a strange dream last night to our, our relatives, but nobody says, ah, here's the interpretation of it. Well, no, our... our, our our relatives don't do that, but we can pay thousands of dollars to psychoanalysts and say, this indicates that you are actually dealing with repressed mama problems that have blossomed out of, you know, that kind of thing. We pay people to do that kind of thing. In the ancient world, though, they didn't think of dreams in that entirely subjective, entirely psychological way. How did they think of dreams? They thought of dreams as ways in which the gods were communicating with them. And certainly within the Bible, we see a, a dreams were ways in which God communicated with his, his people. We saw the way that, for instance, God communicated with Joseph's father, Jacob, when he reached Bethel. He gave him that wonderful vision of the ladder descending between heaven and earth and the angels ascending and descending upon it. And that, of course, is a, a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And throughout the Bible, we're going to see how important dreams were, both the dreams of believers and the dreams of unbelievers that were in turn interpreted by believers. So, yes, dreams were ways in which God from time to time communicated in his people at the time of the Bible when, when the word was being laid down. And the ancient people, of course, they thought that the gods were communicating things about their future, things about fate and destiny to them. But in, uh, in their day, so they would be seen as predictive, uh, predictive, rather. Men, of course, made fortunes telling kings and other dignitaries what dreams actually meant. And the butler and the baker are sad because they have been thrown in jail and therefore they no longer have access to the magi or the wise men who made their living telling people what dreams meant or interpreting dreams. So they're sitting there very sad. I've had this dream. I don't understand it. And there's nobody here to tell me. Joseph, of course, has had a lot of experience with dreams. He had his own dreams of the sheaves bowing down and the stars uh, bowing down from the sky that God had given him, which, of course, was a prophecy of what would happen when he was exalted to the position of second in Egypt. And there again, I've gone and spoiled the story for you. I'm so sorry. Those of you who are unaware of what happened to Joseph, uh, forgive me for, for doing that. Uh, he also would have heard about his father Jacob's dreams. And so therefore, he, he had heard about dreams and he had been given by God the gift of interpreting these dreams. He believed with all his heart that these dreams were sent by God. And that only God, and he makes this point to him. Now, this was something that the Magi would never do. These fortune tellers who were in the courts of kings, they would assert, oh, I have great power, great learning. I am somebody who has studied the ancient scrolls. I have gnosis, that is secret knowledge that I have amassed that allows me to correctly interpret dreams. I know what orbits well, they didn't know about the orbits of the planets, but I know how the stars move and so on and how they affect dreams and things like that. And I can bring all of this great learning to bear on these subjects and give you a correct interpretation. Joseph is much simpler when he explains how this works. He says, does not God give the interpretation of dreams? The one who sends the dream also sends the interpretation of it. And he says, it's only Elohim, the God of my fathers, who can give you the correct interpretation. So tell me your dream. 
Well, the butler then, the first man up, tells him his dream. He says he dreamed that uh, he was, you know, in a sense going about his work. He, he saw, though, this vine, and normally a vine would not bud and bear grapes in three days, but in this case it does. And he takes the grapes and he squeezes them in the cup and he gives them to Pharaoh. And so Joseph says, well, the interpretation of this is simple. You're going to be released in three days. And, of course, the butler would be thinking, three days, that's... Pharaoh's birthday. It seems very likely. So he's very happy about this to have a, uh, a, a definite interpretation. Now, I need to say this. I was raised around phony baloney dream interpreters. I was raised around psychics and, and so on. And one of the things that they always do, the funny thing is when you went and you got your palm read or they would tell you about your previous lives, because of course they believe in reincarnation, I was always something exciting. I was always like a Hungarian prince who fought against the Turks, blah, blah, blah. That's who you know, I was in a previous life. It was like, oh, you were a ditch digger. You fell off a horse in a drunken stupor and cracked your head. <laughs> the, oh, oh, and this other time, yeah. No, you never amounted to anything in any of your previous lives. I'm sorry. You're a complete failure. They never did that, of course, because nobody wants to hear that. What did they tell you? They looked at you, and they interpreted you. They tried to figure out what you wanted to hear, and then they told you what you wanted to hear. Joseph, however, does not do this, and we're going to see that in the next case, obviously. Joseph, so he interprets this dream... For the butler, he says, three days and you'll be restored. And Joseph, in doing that, he's conveying only and exactly what the Lord tells him with absolute confidence. Now note, had Joseph been a shyster, what could he have done? He could have said, you will be released, but only if you tell Pharaoh (laughs) that he has to release this particular Hebrew slave and so on. He could have loaded his interpretation. He doesn't. He just conveys what the Lord had told him was the interpretation of the dream. The baker, though, hears this and he's like, gets out in three days. That's great. My dream had three in it. Okay, so here's what I dreamed. And he tells Joseph his dream, thinking, well, his interpretation was good, so mine will be as well. And of course, at this point, as I said, Joseph might have been tempted, if he was a phony, to change the message or to make him happy or at least to, you know, tone it down a little Oh, I'm not sure. It's not clear at this point. Uh, Come, maybe three days you need to come and ask me. And, and, you know, that kind of thing. But he doesn't. He tells the baker the bad news. He tells him exactly what it means. Matthew Henry, I think, makes a very good interpretation of this, or makes a good application, I should say, of this saying. He says, ministers are but interpreters. They cannot make the thing otherwise than it is. If therefore they deal faithfully and their message prove unpleasing, it is not their fault. I cannot tell you, brothers and sisters, how many times it has been that people have told me about their lives or their plans and so on, and they have wanted desperately for me to tell them something good. I have this crazy idea. Here, let me spread it before you. I'm like, "Ah, (laughs) how did you think this was a good, you know, and, and so they want you to tell them something good about it. But if you're going to be true to the word, then you can't. Here, I would like you to meet this person I've fallen madly in love with. I'm going to spend the rest of my life with them. And you meet the most godless person you've met in your entire life. What do you think? Ah, No. That kind of thing. That's not what they want to hear in that moment. And unfortunately also, it's become virtually 
and we'll talk about this in a little while uh, later, it's become the case that pastors are under tremendous pressure, no matter what church you're in, to say pleasing things about people and their situation and the culture and the country and everything, to only tell people the good stuff. I read a, a report, um, one of the least discussed subjects in the American church is the persecuted church, the fact that our brothers and sisters throughout the world are so heavily persecuted for their own faith. Why do they do that? Well, that's, that's bad news. It might imply that as Christians, we're not supposed to receive constant health and wealth, that it might be our lot in life to be, as Paul puts it, the offscourings of the world and to suffer persecution on this side of heaven. But that would be negative. And so pastors don't tell people the truth about the way the world is going to treat us. But what are we doing then? We're deceiving people. We shouldn't do that. We live in a time when men would rather proclaim smooth things and say peace, peace, when there is no peace. We do not also tend to proclaim the law or the bad news that people without Christ are on their way to hell. And we do not go against the favorite evils of the current age. What do we mean by that? Well, today, to preach against slavery, it's easy. It's popular. Everybody would like to hear about how terrible slavery is. The culture is very much in tune with that. But if I was standing in this pulpit in 1840 or 1850 and I started preaching against slavery, how well do you think the congregation would have received it? I might have heard cocking sounds, let's put it that way, and heard from the members of the church, the elders and the deacons afterwards, exactly what they thought about my anti-slavery sentiments expressed in the sermon. Or today, if I preach against Sabbath breaking, or if I preach against women's ministry, often I will see these incredibly dour looks on people's faces. It's not the message that they want to hear. You preach against the evils of the age that you're in, and people will be upset. But that is our calling. If it's God's word, if God's word clearly says it, then we have to convey it to the people no matter what. Because whether or not they like it, it's what they need to hear. I mean, think about this. Would you go to a doctor who promised up front to only tell you good news all the time? So you go to him and he does the scans and the tests and it clearly shows that you have some sort of chronic, uncurable or possibly fatal illness. And he looks at you and says... You're fine. You're going to be well, you know, rather than telling you, you need surgery, you need this treatment, you need this. This is what you're really facing. I think most people would say, no, I want the truth about my actual state. And a minister of God should do that. He should tell people the truth. That's what Joseph did with the butler. He told him the truth. At least the man had an opportunity, however small, to prepare for what was coming rather than being surprised by it. Joseph is God's man. He tells the truth. And indeed, in three days, which the officials knew was Pharaoh's birthday, they're taken out of prison, and exactly what he predicted happened to both men. Now, this would have been in his own life great encouragement to him regarding his own dreams, that they were going to come to pass as well. But now, of course, as soon as the butler leaves and is restored, there's this awful anxious period of waiting. How soon before the butler would speak to Pharaoh for him? And so he waits, and he waits, and each day he would have been hoping for a message, a word. You've been called to Pharaoh's court, you're going to present your case, and so on, but it never comes. And that must have been incredibly depressing for him, disappointing. But what Pharaoh 
And Joseph and the butler, none of them knew was that God was going to use even this, the fact that he had stayed in the prison, that he wasn't released at this time for his good. But from Joseph's point of view, it was just bad. He never gets released from prison. Eventually, his hopes begin to perish. And instead, he continues on in this gloomy prison. No change. Now, what do we learn from that? Well, we live in a time when we see that biblical prophecies, many of them have been fulfilled. And brothers and sisters, that should give us hope for the future. The same God who made prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in the Old Testament and fulfilled them, Syriadim, he's not going to suddenly stop. It's not going to be the case that against all odds, the Hebrew people come to the promised land, are established just as the Lord said. They thrive when all the other people groups around them fade into the time of history or the, uh, the ash heap of history. They continue on and eventually in Bethlehem, just as was prophesied, the anointed one, the Messiah is born, a son of David who preaches the word, who goes to the cross, who dies for our sins. And then the word is amazingly proclaimed just as the anointed one, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, said it would be. And it goes amazingly to the four corners of the earth just as he said it would. The nations are brought in and everything, Syriadim, that Jesus said comes to pass and that somehow God's plans are going to fail despite all of that. We should be able to look at all of those things, those predictions, those dreams, those prophecies that were written down for us in the word of God and see how as all of them came to pass, so too all of the ones that have not yet been fully fulfilled, including the return of Christ and the establishing of the kingdom of heaven throughout the world and the new heavens and the new earth, that those two will come to pass in time. But here's the thing. Like Joseph in prison, we don't see that each day, do we? We become very subjective in our outlook. We get tunnel vision. We only see what's around us. We only see what's going on in our, in our nation. We, as I said in the morning, we look at, at the news and we say, am I trapped in the middle of some sort of weird dystopian novel? Everything. It seems to be like evil is triumphing on every side. And we don't even know left from right, boy from girl, up from down, everything has become a nonsense mishmash. Everything seems to be becoming more evil. It seems like night is everywhere instead of day. But brothers and sisters, the word reminds us that's just our perspective in a tiny slice of time because we don't see everything. We don't see the end, rather the end, from the beginning. We're living out the timeline, but we've only got a tiny perspective on it. God sees all the things that need to come to pass. One of the things that has to happen is that every single saint whom he ordained would be brought into the kingdom has to be brought into the kingdom. And every saint whom he ordained would be martyred for his name has to be martyred. All these things have to take place. But when they've all taken place, then the end comes. Everything is fulfilled just as he said. And so we don't lose heart because we know that he's trustworthy, that none of his promises ever fail. Now, I know many Christians who have given up hope because they look at the world in their tiny slice of it during their tiny lifetime and they say, eh, it's not coming to pass. Or perhaps they were sold pie in the sky, by and by promises. I know so many people who were shown, uh, this film came out in the 70s. It is, most Christian movies, let's face it, are cheesy, all right? This one set, uh, it, it's like, it, it's, not even, it's not even Gouda, it's Camembert or something way up there uh, in the cheese scale. 
Uh, it was called Thief in the Night. And it was essentially this film about dispensational theology. You know, people are walking, one disappears, the other one's left, and so on. It was worse than Left Behind, which is also terrible. Uh, but same theology. But the emphasis was on now, now, now. Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Right? He didn't come back tomorrow. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. You know, but it was always imminent. You have to believe now. I knew so many people who were told, you have to believe now because Jesus is coming back tomorrow. And you have to be ready. And then Jesus didn't come back tomorrow. And so what happened? Eventually they lost hope. I was sold a bill of goods. I'm stuck on this world with, with just lousy stuff. I'm not enjoying it. Well, brothers and sisters, we don't know when God is coming back. We don't know when Jesus, I mean, well, God is always there, obviously. We don't know when Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, we don't know when he's coming back, but he's coming back according to God's timing, not ours. In the fullness of time, this too will take place. All of God's promises are yea and amen in him. It seemed, for instance, to the people of Israel that the Messiah who was promised was never going to come. We need to remember that the first promises that the seed would come were made thousands and thousands and thousands of years before the seed came. <laughs> the funny thing is, Eve, uh, there's good reason to believe that she thought that Cain was the promised seed, the Redeemer. Oh, he's here already. That was, I thought we were going to spend a long time in this fallen world. But that's not the way it worked, is it? They had to wait until zero, you know, doing the BC countdown. They didn't know they were out at, you know, the 9,000 area and gradually counting down towards the coming of Christ. And so, too, we don't know exactly when in the AD, the year of our Lord, Jesus is coming back. But we know that he's coming back. Why? Because he told us he would. And he has never told a lie and never will. So I know he's going to come back. I know that more certainly than I know that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. Second application, don't trust in men, honestly. If you put your trust in men, they will disappoint you. The only one who never disappoints you, even the people who don't want to disappoint you, will end up disappointing you. Why? Because they're not all powerful. They cannot sustain themselves in being. I know so many people who have put their trust in people and then those people have either left or died because they're only mortals. Or they said that they would do something and it didn't come to pass simply because they didn't have the power to bring it about. Psalm 146.3 says, Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs, he returns to the earth. In that very day his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Where do we put our hope? Put your hope in the Lord. He will never disappoint you. He will never leave you, never forsake you. He watches over you, even in the worst of times. You may be in the furnace, but he will be there with you. I have experienced this, brothers and sisters. I have been a Christian since 1993. God has never left me. He's never abandoned me. And I know my hope and my trust is well placed in him. As Psalm 26 puts it, Now I know the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven while the saving, with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. So that means, brothers and sisters, not only can you not trust the, you can't trust the people in your lives to be God, and when you try to make them into God, you're placing too much weight upon them, but you also can't trust in political answers. 
There is no political party, no political leader who is going to produce the wonderful results. The best of men are men at best. They come and they go. I have my political heroes, but none of them lasted forever, and none of them brought in the new heavens and the new earth. None of them eradicated sin. They made things maybe a little bit better for a little while. They brought in some common sense based upon the Bible, but none of them were able to save me from my sins, to sustain me in my time of need, to hear my prayers, or to do any of those things. When we put our faith in messianic political leaders, we're in trouble. We need to put our faith in the real Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and trust in him. Finally, last application, I promise, but don't be like the butler. What do I mean by that? Well, don't go about forgetting Christ after he's delivered you. That happens so often. The butler just heard the good news from Joseph, and then, you know, when he was back in Pharaoh's palace, out of sight is out of mind, it was gone. Christ actually delivered you from your sins, but how many of us forget him as soon as that deliverance has happened? How many times has it been that we've prayed for something? Say we prayed for um, a promotion at work or something along those lines, and we get it. Do we take Christ with us into the next job? When somebody says, congratulations, you, you got this honor, you, you got this promotion in this position, how often did we actually say, it's none of me and all of Christ? Do you know how long I prayed for this position? And he answered my prayers, praise God. Isn't that wonderful? No, what do we do? Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. I hope I'll be a, a valued part of the team. I'm eager to get started. Blah, 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 blah. You know, that kind of thing. We forget Christ day by day. We should remember, if somebody literally saved your life, let's say using an image that was before us, literally succeeded in pulling you from a burning car while you were literally on fire, extinguished the flames, saved you from a horrible death, would you forget that person? Would you put them out of mind? I, I, I think you'd remember their birthday, wouldn't you? Send them cards occasionally. Do, do something to acknowledge them. But how many Christians live as though Christ never saved them on the cross? I think far too many. It should be the case that people, for instance, looking at our social media profiles should know immediately, shouldn't they, that we're Christians? It shouldn't be something they have to search and maybe it's in the about. No, it's not there. Maybe it's, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. It should be the case that we radiate Christ, that, you know, they used to say, if Spurgeon, prick him anywhere, and he bleeds Bibline. The Bible literally came out of him. That should be the case with us. We should always be turning people towards Christ. Speaking of Christ, we call ourselves what? Christians. So who's supposed to be at the center of our life in all things? Christ. Let's not forget him, brothers and sisters. Let's put him first in all things. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, we thank you so much for the reminders that you have not left us, you haven't forsaken us, you never will, that your promises are all yea and amen that every prophecy that was ever made in your word will surely come to pass, that the day is coming, though we don't know when it is, it may be still far off, when your son's promise to return just as he ascended will take place. There's a day coming, we know, when the trumpet will sound, when the dead will be raised, when the sun will descend with all those who have gone on before. And, oh, Lord, how we look forward to that day of his certain return.
We don't know whether it's imminent, it could happen tomorrow, or it could be yet a thousand years distant, but we know it will happen in the fullness of time when you have determined. Help us then to trust in you and to know that you are the only wise God and that we are absolutely safe in your hands.